Well, I'm excited tonight to share with you. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna teach I'm gonna teach a little bit tonight, um, so I'm not gonna go. Uh, I don't I don't have like a like a crazy um, dynamic message for you, but um, I just want to share with you some some fruit of some personal study um, that the Lord that the Lord has laid on my heart uh, over the last over the last few months as I've studied and and as I've worked, and I think that there's some some very practical implications. For us, so tonight I'd like to look at a couple of terms. Pastor will mention it this morning. Um, it's important for us as we handle the text of Scripture and as we look at the Word of God that we need to know uh, terms and definitions, and it's important for us to know what we're talking about when we handle the text of Scripture. And a couple of months ago, I was working with uh, I was working with my wife and um, and Linda Joey, and, and we were looking at the Book of Esther, and they were preparing to do a ladies' Bible study during. Quarantine. So I helped them study through that book, and then they were teaching it, uh, teaching it to the ladies. Um, and then after they got done with that, I thought, man, that was really good. So I went back to the start of the book, and I went and I was working through it again personally on my own, and just kind of massaging the text and 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 learning from it. And as I was going through that text, I recognized I was using a couple of terms. Uh, I was using the term sovereignty and providence a lot as I was reading through the Book of Esther. And if you're familiar with the book of Esther at all, you, you probably know that God is never mentioned in the book of Esther one time. So God is, is never mentioned, but God actually functions as the main character of the book of Esther. So even though he's never mentioned, God is the one who is orchestrating uh, all the events that are happening. So Esther and Mordecai actually just function as secondary characters throughout the book. They're there, but the story isn't primarily about them. It's about God who is working and bringing about his divine plan. So I started using these terms, sovereignty and, and providence, repeatedly. And as I was using those terms, it made me wonder, could I actually define what I mean as I use these terms? So I, I, I say God is sovereign, right? So I'm taking notes. The sovereignty of God. And then I think, can I actually define that? Like, do I actually know what that means? And then I was doing the same thing with providence. And then I was using those words interchangeably. So I was using, uh, I, I was basically defining them the same way without actually knowing what I meant by writing them down. So... I decided to study out those two terms and to see if they actually could be used interchangeably. And, and this study's taken me to some interesting places, and, and that's what I want to share with you this evening. I just want to share with you the fruit of that study on God's sovereignty and God's providence. Uh, but before we go ahead and get into the text, um, let's ask the Lord to help us and, uh, as, as we look into his word this evening. Heavenly Father, I pray that this evening as we look into the text of Scripture, as we examine your sovereignty and as we look at your providence, I pray that you would help me uh, this evening. This has been a, a good study for me. Uh, it has been encouraging and challenging. And I pray that tonight, as we look in this, a little, a little bit different, more of, a, more of a topical study this evening, I just pray that you would help me to rightfully divide the word of truth. And um, that tonight we would leave encouraged and, and, and challenged and just supremely confident um, and thankful for the fact that you are God and we are not. And I pray that you would uh, just help us leave with a renewed sense of, of thankfulness and confidence in who you are and what you can and will do. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. So when the book of Esther was written, it's important for us to know who the original audience was when we read a book, right? So when you go to, to the text of Scripture and you start studying through a book, you need to know who it was written to. You need to know why, why it was written. And the book of Esther was written to a Jewish remnant that had returned to Judah and they were residing in the promised land. So if you know a little bit about your history, 
Um, so Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, comes to Judah in 586 B.C., and he destroys the city of Jerusalem, he destroys the temple, and he takes the Israelites captive into Babylon. Well, at the fall of the Babylonian Empire, there was a man named Cyrus the Great, and he institutes a new em empire called the Medo-Persian Empire. And he comes in and he overthrows the Babylonian Empire. And Cyrus the Great takes a very interesting uh, stance on foreign policy, much different than the Babylonians. So Cyrus the Great basically says, hey, we are going to take subjugated peoples that we've brought to Babylon and we're going to send them back to their homelands. And that's what he does with the nation of Israel. And so he sends Israelites back to the promised land. And so Esther is written to that group of Jewish individuals who has returned to Judah from captivity. This is a generation of Jews that were struggling. So they were living in the promised land, but they, they were going through hard times. They were going through a lot of difficulty. They had taken over 20 years to rebuild the temple. And they only did that because the prophets Haggai and Zechariah really pushed them to get it done. They were spiritually stagnant. That led them to intermarry with foreign peoples. They had also withheld tithes from the priests and they had broken the Sabbath. You can remember some of the conversations that Nehemiah has with the people at the end of that book. God does some amazing things. They build the wall in 52 days. But Nehemiah actually ends kind of on a depressing note because the nation of Israel still doesn't get it. Still doesn't get it. This is spiritually stagnant people. As a result of all this sinfulness and struggle, they're vulnerable again to the judgment of God. This was a people that needed a wake-up call. So they were spiritually stagnant, but they were also physically oppressed by their enemies. In the book of Ezra, we read that there are various attempts to promote the welfare of the Jews that had been stifled. And in Judah, men like Samballot and Tobiah, Geshem and others, they stood diametrically opposed to and they threatened physical violence against those who had returned. We read that in the book of Nehemiah. They're building the wall and these men are threatening to attack the Israelites who are seeking to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. They were also antagonized by men like Haman. We read about him in the book of Esther. He was so bent on the destruction of the nation of Israel that he was willing to lie to the king of Persia, the most powerful man in the world at that time. He was willing to literally sacrifice his soul for the annihilation of God's people. So this remnant, they were spiritually slothful, they were physically fearful, and they needed a reminder of the providence and the power of God. And the book of Esther does just that. You read through the book of Esther and you can come to no other conclusion than the fact that God is alive and actively at work on behalf of his people. Now, when I was studying through this, I, I think that, and, and I was using these terms, God's sovereignty and God's providence. I, I think that they're different. So there are, some, there are some nuances and there's some difference there. But I think that both of these truths have a tremendous impact on our daily life. So I'd like to start with just taking a quick look at the sovereignty of God. So God's sovereignty, what is it? Right, so let's define our terms right off the bat so we're all starting from the same place. What is the sovereignty of God? Well, I believe that very simply, God is almighty and authoritative to the extent of being able to supersede all other power and authority. Basically, God is all-powerful and he has the ability to do whatever he wants to. That's sovereignty in a nutshell. Nothing can stop any act or purpose which God plans according to his will. If you have your Bible, turn to the book of Job, and let's look at Job chapter 42. Book of Job, Job chapter number 42. 
I think that this verse is probably one of the most sweeping declarations of what God's sovereignty is in all of Scripture. Job 42, look with me, starting in verse 1. So God has been speaking to Job, and then Job answers the Lord uh, in, in, in verse, chapter 42 and verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no thought can be withholding from me. That's sovereignty. I know that you can do everything. In Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, the text says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times to the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. That's sovereignty. God has the ability and he has the authority to do anything that he wants to. He supersedes all other authorities and actions. He's God. And because he is God, he is absolutely sovereign. Now we have to address the question, since God is sovereign, what is God sovereign over? Right? So, is he, uh, so what aspects is God, does God's sovereignty cover? Well, I think first of all, we see that God's sovereignty covers nature. In Psalm 135, 6 and 7, it says, Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all the deep places. He causes the vapors to ascend. He maketh lightnings for the rain. He bringeth wind out of the treasuries. God is sovereign over nature. God controls every aspect of the natural world. He can make, he can make everything happen. He has the power over it all. God is sovereign over nature. But not only God is sovereign over nature, he's also sovereign specifically over animals. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. So a bird out in the jungle in the middle of nowhere, God knows when it falls and hits the ground. Not only does he know, he's the one that makes it happen. Because he's sovereign. He's in control over nature. He's in control over animals. I love the story of Balaam's donkey. Right? God, can use, God can use animals to accomplish his will. You see that repeatedly in Scripture. You studied the book of Jonah. God can use a fish to send a message to Jonah. Right? God is sovereign. He's sovereign over animals. But not only that, but God is also sovereign over nations. Sovereign over nations. Second Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 6 states, And said, O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven, and rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee? These are rhetorical questions, by the way. He is saying God is sovereign over the nations. And God does control all the kingdoms of the heathen. And God does have power and might, and there is none that is able to withstand him. God is sovereign over nations. But not only that, God is sovereign over kings. Pastor Will just referenced it. Proverbs 21 and verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. The king's heart is like a stream in the hands of God. And God can direct it and maneuver it and make it go wherever he wants to. God is sovereign over kings. I don't know about you, but that's an encouraging thought. God is sovereign over kings. He knows the decisions. He's also sovereign over all, all human decisions. So this is a, probably a familiar text to some of you, but in Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 9, it says, A man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. God is sovereign over human decisions. There's nothing that surprises God. No decision or action that you make shocks God. He knows it. He has directed it. 
God is sovereign over human decision making. And God is sovereign over all things. This is one of my favorite verses in all of scripture. Psalm 115 and verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He has done whatsoever he has pleased. God is God and we are not. God is in heaven and he does whatever he wants to. And that, that is an encouraging thought. Well, some people get a little bit nervous about the idea that, man, God is sovereign. He has control over everything and his sovereignty extends over all things. And that, and that can be a little bit of a nervous thing. But we also have to understand that there are parameters on God's sovereignty that he imposes on himself. And the parameters that God puts on his own sovereignty, I think that there's two parameters. The first one is that God's sovereignty is steeped in his wisdom. So God's sovereignty works in accordance with the wisdom of God. Turn over real quick to the book of Romans. Turn over to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 11. So if you're familiar with the book of Romans, so the first half of the book of Romans, well, Romans 1 through 11, is very theological in nature. And then you get to Romans 12 through 16, and that's the practical section of the book of Romans. So in Romans chapters 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul deals with the doctrine of depravity and sin, the human condition. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In Romans chapter 4 and 5, he deals with the doctrine of justification, we can stand before God the judge and be declared righteous. In chapter 6, 7, and 8, he deals with the doctrine of sanctification. Now that we have been justified, now there is naturally a life change that comes out of that. We are now saints and we are to live in accordance with that designation. And then in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul deals with the doctrines of glorification and election. Right? He talks about that. And now you have this relationship of Jew and Gentile and there's all this stuff going on. And look at Paul's expression here. So he ends this theological section of the book of Romans. And look with me, starting in verse 33. Paul said, he gets done with all this theology. And this is his exclamation. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has first given to him? And it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. God's sovereignty is steeped in his wisdom. It's steeped. How unsearchable are the riches of the knowledge of God. God never does anything randomly or on a whim. So God never, there's never any, uh, there's never any capriciousness with God. He never functions in a way where it's just random or he's slack in his decision making. God is very intentional and everything that he does is in accordance with his divine wisdom. This is huge. That's huge news for us. Everything that God does is immersed in divine wisdom. There's nothing that God does outside of his own character and outside of his own wisdom. There's nothing random or whimsical with God. So God's sovereignty is steeped in his wisdom, but God's sovereignty also functions in accordance with his justice and with his mercy. Functions in accordance with his justice and with his mercy. In Genesis chapter 18, I was just reading this in my devotions the other day. Uh, there's a really interesting conversation that happens between Abraham and God. So Lot has gone into the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it is, well, in the city of Sodom. 
And it has been revealed to Abraham that God is going to destroy these cities for their wickedness. And Abraham appeals to God and he says, are you also going to destroy the righteous with the wicked? And if you remember, Abraham starts with, if there's 50 righteous people in Sodom, are you going to spare the city? And Abraham and God have this really interesting conversation and they work it all the way down to 10 people. And there aren't 10 people, righteous people that are found in Sodom. So God destroys the city. But Abraham makes an incredible declaration about the character of God in that text. In Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25, he says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? We look at the American justice system and we know that there are issues in the American justice system, right? A lot of people say that our justice system is broken in various respects. But there is a divine judge who always does what is right. He is sovereign and his justice is always in accordance with his sovereignty. So God's sovereignty, his decision-making, his ability, and his right to rule is always governed by his justice. And the judge of all the earth will do what is right. Period. But not only that, God is also merciful. And God's sovereignty works through the filter of his mercy. In Romans chapter 9 and verse 14, um, it says, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. God never wrongs anyone. And, and that, that's an encouraging thought as well. God never wrongs anybody. But it should be noted that justice is not God's chief goal. God's purpose is not justice. That is not the bottom line with God. But rather, God's chief end is to be glorified for his, pervert, or for his provision of mercy and grace to undeserving rebels. That's you and me. And God's ultimate purpose is to be glorified for his mercy that he shows to us. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we see who we are. Dead in sin, right? Conversation in time past, according to the lust of your flesh, right? We had the spirit of disobedience working within us. We were underneath the wrath and condemnation of God. And in verse 4, it says, but God, who is rich in mercy. And then we see what God does in verses 4 through 9. And then in verse 10, he tells us, because of that, we are now a masterpiece that is created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That is God's divine mercy. And his sovereignty always functions in according with his justice and with his mercy. So that's sovereignty. Sovereignty in a nutshell. When we talk God's sovereignty, we talk about his ability and his right to rule. So let's transition real quick. So let's, let's move from sovereignty and let's talk God's providence real quick. So when I was discussing or when I was studying and looking at God's providence, uh, this is a really, really interesting topic to me. And, and John Piper wrote a really, really great article on God's providence called Seeing to the Universe. And he handles this idea really well. But providence, I was actually surprised when I found it. Providence is not a Hebrew word or a Greek word. So we don't actually see it in the original languages that scripture was written in. But rather, providence is a Latin word. It's a Latin idea. And it stems from two parts. Pro, which means forward or on behalf of. And vide, which means to see. So we might be tempted to look at those two pieces, forward or on behalf of and to see, and think, well, providence then is God's ability to see out into the future. But that's actually not the case. That's not, that's not what providence is. That's not what it entails. Providence means to supply what is needed. 
to give sustenance or support. In a theological sense, so how does providence apply to God? So in a theological sense, we can understand providence as the providing for or sustaining and governing of the universe by God. So God provides for the universe, he governs it, he takes care of it. That's divine providence. And you say, well, is that definition or is that understanding supported in scripture? Well, let me give you, let me give you a couple of, of proofs here. The first one is linguistic, so we'll work through this pretty quickly. But in the Latin, the idea here is seeing on behalf of. Seeing on the behalf of somebody. So the idea of seeing to something carries the idea of providing for it. So when my wife comes to me and she says, hey, can you see to our dog? She's not asking me to just go and look at our dog. She's asking me to make sure that our dog has water, that our dog has been fed, that our dog has been exercised, right? That it has everything that it needs. When she asks me to see to our dog, she's actually asking me to take care of and provide for our dog. And that's the idea here of providence. That's what this Latin word means. It's the idea of seeing to something. And so when God is, in God's providence, what he is doing is he is seeing to the universe. He is providing for, taking care of, sustaining his creation. Seeing to, it means taking an active responsibility to make sure that provision is made for someone or something. Now let me show you where I think that we can see this in the text of Scripture. Turn to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. And if you know the story in Genesis chapter 22, Isaac, the promised son, God has promised Abraham to Isaac, or Isaac to Abraham. God has promised Isaac to Abraham for decades. And finally, finally, Isaac is born. And now, in Genesis 22, God is going to exercise and test Abraham's faith by asking him to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. And we start in verse 2, God says, Take now thy son, thy only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering. And if you're familiar with the story, we get to the end of this text. And we know that as Abraham is ready to plunge that knife into his son, that God stops him, divinely withholds his hand, and God provides a lamb that they sacrifice in the place of Isaac. But there's something really interesting in this text. If you look with me in verse 8, Isaac, you can see that Abraham and his son have worshipped together before. Look back at verse 6. Abraham took the wood of his burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac. They went with the fire and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father. He said, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Clearly Abraham and Isaac had done this before. Isaac knew that something was missing. And look in verse 8. Abraham said, My son, God will provide. If you look in that, ver in that, that word there in your English, that word provide, in the Hebrew that word is yarah, which means to see. So literally in the text it says God, or Abraham is telling Isaac, my son, God will see himself a lamb. It's interesting. All right, now look down into verse 14. Abraham called the name of that place. So after God provides the lamb, and after this is given, they call the name of the place Jehovah Jireh. That's the same word, Yarach, in the Hebrew. So literally, the God who sees is what they name this place. 
And as it explains, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen, <laughs> right? It's right there in verse, in verse 14. So the question that we have to come to is, why do they use this word to see in this text? What do seeing and providing, how do those two equate to one another? And I think that the simple, on the simplest level, we can answer it this way. God never sees without acting. So where God sees, he acts there. His providence is in play. Where God sees, he sees to or provides for the situation at hand. Where he looks, he acts. He sees and he does. Where he punch rolls, he controls, so to speak. So God's providence is him seeing to the needs of the universe and then acting in accordance with what he sees. That's providence in a nutshell. So the question then is how do, how do sovereignty and providence work together? All right, so sovereignty is God's right and his ability to rule. And providence is God seeing to the universe. Where he sees, he acts. So how do the two work together? Well, I think God's providence functions as a, as a subset of his sovereignty. So sovereignty is God's overarching right and ability to rule. And providence functions underneath that. So this is what God has said, and now this is how God is going to put it into action. God, um, sovereignty, again, it's God's ability and right to rule the world with no limitations. He presides over everything. And I think that it's awesome to remember that God is never helpless or frustrated or surprised by the actions of his creation. God is sovereign and he knows that it's going to happen. He is governing and he is in control. And God is never surprised. God is not surprised by the actions of last week. God will not be surprised over what happens over the next year or over the next four years or in the next decade. God is never surprised because he already knows and he has the right and the ability to rule it in any way that he sees fit. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, For by him were all things created that are in heaven, in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. God is sovereign and he rules over the universe. Providence is God's active participation in his creation. Providence, Roland McCune, He's a professor at Detroit Theological Seminary for many years. He said that providence is God's power in bringing the movement of the universe to its predetermined goal and design. It is the affecting or the outworking of God's decrees. We see this in Titus 2.14. God gave himself for us. God has the right and the ability to rule. And God in his mercy and in his grace saw fit to provide you and I with a way to come back into a right standing with God. In Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us, why? That he might redeem us from all iniquity. That is God's providence at play. Not only that, but to purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. This is providence in action. I think it's really interesting. Um, I was doing some additional research in came across the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563. Heidelberg is a city in Germany. You say, why in the world are you reading stuff from 1563? Well, they have some pretty good stuff back then, so it's good, it's good to read every once in a while. All right, so the Heidelberg Catechism. I think it's interesting. They were teaching this, teaching this to their children. They said, what do you understand by the providence of God? That's the question. 
And the answer that they came back with is the almighty and present power of God, by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. It's divine providence. The next question that they ask in that catechism is how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? This is what Pastor Will was talking about, right? The word of God is not just about knowledge, but we have to take that and then apply it into our daily life. So the question, how does that help us? The answer, we can be patient when things go against us. Thankful when things go well. And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing in creation will separate us from his love. For all the creatures so completely in God's hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. God's providence and his sovereignty should be incredibly comforting to you and I as believers. We should be thankful about the fact that God is God and we are not. We should be thankful for the fact that God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. So what then? What then are the practical applications of sovereign providence? What are the practical applications? This understanding of providence is at the very heart of the book of Esther. Right? So to bring it full circle, this is what got me in this whole study anyway. All right? So this, this understanding of divine providence, that God is working out his divine decrees. It's at the very core of the story of Esther. One theologian put it this way, God's providence is his hand in the glove of history. And that's never more true than in the book of Esther. This message, this message of sovereign providence, it was one that the struggling remnant needed. They needed to be reminded that God was at work. They needed to be reminded that he was active. They needed to be reminded that he was patrolling. They needed to be, they, they also, they desired to be comforted by the knowledge that God had not abandoned them in the midst of their struggles. They could look at the story of Esther and see that God was actively at work on behalf of his people. Sovereignty is not just an abstract, abstract concept. It is worked out practically through God's providence. And I think that our situation today, when we consider our world in 2021, it's not unlike that of the remnant. It's not unlike that of the world that this book of Esther was initially written to. I think we can look around and I think most of us would agree that our world today is in turmoil. The church as a whole has been spiritually stagnant, being content to focus more on contemporary issues than the mission of the Great Commission. We feel, I don't know, well, I don't know about you, but I mean, I think some of us feel physically oppressed by a seemingly unending pandemic. There's spiritual stagnation. There is physical oppression. And when we look around, we see that our country is divided ethnically, economically, philosophically, and morally. And God's people need reassurance that he is at work. And that's where sovereign providence comes into play. So what's the practical encouragement for believers today? Well, flip over with me real quick. Let's look at Romans chapter 8.
Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30 is often called the golden chain of salvation. You've got everything kind of worked out here in these three verses. But let's look specifically tonight at verse 28. Familiar verse to all of you. I think if I were to ask, the bulk of you here tonight would be able to quote this. But this is an incredible reaffirmation of God's sovereign providence. Romans 8, 28. And we know that's a confident word. It's not a rhetorical question, right? That is a word of confidence. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. What this verse tells us, if I can give you some practical encouragement, right? this isn't just a, a theological discussion, some practical encouragement from the truths of sovereign providence. God does not want us to be spiritually stagnant. This verse tells me that God is actively working on our behalf. He is working the good here that this verse is talking about, right, isn't fiscal prosperity. It's not emotional support, but rather what it is, is God is developing Christ's likeness in us. That is the good that he's discussing in this text. So God is actively working on our behalf to develop us and to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. God does not want us to be spiritually stagnant. He is actively working to transform us into his image. I think we see this as well in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 where it says, He, that's God, who has begun a good work in you. That's the process of transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. Sanctification says he will continue to perform it. He is going to work this in us until the day of Jesus Christ. God wants you, he wants you to be transformed into the image of Christ. And he is actively working on your behalf to bring that about. If that is not encouraging, I don't know what is. God is working for you. He is working on your behalf. He wants you to transform into the image of his son. And he is there and he is actively working for you, on you, and in you to help you become more like Jesus Christ. The sovereign, providential God is doing that on your behalf. And if that's not encouraging, I think you need to check your spiritual pulse. Because this is an incredible truth that we should grab onto and cling and preach to ourselves on a daily basis. God is working for us. It's providence, divine, sovereign providence at work. I think the other practical piece of encouragement that I could give you is if you are feeling discouraged today. And if it's not today, could be in the future, right? So the book of James in chapter 1, it tells us, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Trials will come, if not now, future. So when we face discouragement, when we face difficult circumstances, if, if you are in this boat today, I don't know your situation, but I can state with confidence that I do know your God. And God is a sovereign God. And God is a providential God who is actively at work on behalf of his people. He is actively working to bring about Christ's likeness in you. He hasn't forgotten you. He knows your needs. He sees all. And where he sees, he acts. God is actively working on your behalf. So if I can give you the practical encouragement, he doesn't want us to be spiritually stagnant. 
So engage, engage in the call to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Work as we move forward and seek to fulfill the Great Commission. God is working for us and in us, and he will work through us. And if you're discouraged, take rest and comfort in the sovereign providence of God. Rest in him, trust in him, be faithful to him. May God help us to leave today with a renewed sense of thankfulness for God's providence and a renewed commitment to move forward in our efforts to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look into your word this evening. And this has been an encouraging and a challenging study for me personally. I pray that you would help us tonight. This is, these truths of sovereignty and providence are like a hug. You just wrap us up and, and give us confidence and you show your love to us in such amazing ways. And I pray that as, as we consider these truths of sovereign providence, that we would leave tonight reassured and confident that you are active and that you are alive and that you are working on behalf of your people. Thank you for the truth that you are God and that we are not. Thank you that you see everything and that where you see, you act on our behalf. So I pray that you would leave, help us to leave tonight encouraged, confident, ready to re-engage in the call to fulfill the mission that you have called us to. We'll give you the honor and glory for it. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, James, for that. Not just taking something and showing us interesting things, but making it very practical for us to take God's word and apply it to our lives. Well, if you got your ballot, if you had time to fill it out, I'm going to ask you just to pass them to the aisle. Maybe we can get a couple guys. I'm sorry. Oh, anybody missing one that needed one? Here's one up front here. That's the, I guess, the penalty for sitting down front tonight, Matt. I'm sorry. We'll get you one. If you need help deciphering it, let him know. <laughs> if the if this type is too small, let me know. Dad, can you help him? We The font is too small. <coughs> We'll get those passed in and collected, and then Lisa will get those counted up in the bank. Uh, thank you for that. This week, as you go through it, I would encourage you to spend time in prayer. As I said this morning, reach out to our other church family members. Let them know you're praying for them. And uh, I, I was just thinking, as James was talking tonight about God's providence and His work in our world and in our lives, it is amazing, and maybe it's just one of the unique things about being a pastor, but I think all of us to some degree go through this, how many people we encounter all the time that, uh, and I had this experience today, you find out about hurts and painful things and difficult struggles that they're going through, and uh, I, the longer I go, the older I get, the less surprised I get about some of the things. But we live in a world where people are carrying heavy burdens. And those burdens are often there because of sin. Sometimes theirs, sometimes other people's sin. But either way, that hurt and that pain is very real. And I really believe that God has put us, like he did Esther, here for such a time as this to be able to share the message of Jesus Christ, of his love, 
and of his care. The challenging thing for us often becomes when you're helping people who are hurting, uh, they tend to not change as quickly as you want them to change. Uh, in fact, they may even get hurt other people in the process of them working through it. So I would encourage you not to pull back from those things, but rather trusting in God's sovereignty and then his providence to, to work in people's lives and to change them. With God's help, as you pray, as you study God's word, be ready and willing to engage the people around you with the hope of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Whether that's a stranger that you meet and you have an opportunity to speak with them or a friend or a family member. Sometimes I shrink back from having certain conversations with people because I know it's going to be challenging. I know it's going to be hard. Or we tend to not want to get to know people too deeply because if we go deep, we might uncover things that we didn't want to uncover. That being said, when God does his work, he doesn't just do it at a, at a surface level. God goes deep. He changes hearts and he changes lives. In fact, the word of God, we know, is a discerner even of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So as we go through this week, as you continue to go through this year, realize if you will engage others, you will face challenges. <laughs> you will uncover problems. There will be hurts and pains. But God has given us everything that we need through his word, and through his spirit, to be able to share the good news and to bring hope. But realize, you've got to care. You've got to love like Jesus did. Uh, this is Some of these conversations aren't quick. They don't happen overnight or in just a moment. And be willing to let God do his work in his way and in his time. But let's be faithful to keep sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and his love for others. And I believe as we do that and shine the light of Christ, as this world gets darker, it makes the light shine even brighter. And so we have a great opportunity to do that. Well, thank you for being with us here tonight. I'm going to close us in a word of prayer. Also, uh, I, before I do that, I remember one thing. Lisa was able to complete the giving statements for last year. Some of you may have already got it in your email. If you do, great. If you like a paper copy, I think she has those as well, if you prefer that. And um, some of you, I know, would prefer that. And so I believe she has some of those. And we'll be passing some of those out this evening and over the next week or so. So this is 2020 giving statements. Yes, sir. Yes, so James is going to send out a note here about that for next week. And we'll take care of that then. Yeah, no problem. That's fine. All right, well, let's close in a word of prayer. And um, then whenever Lisa has a chance to finish count, counting that, we can let you know. We may just do that in an email this week. That might be easier. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this time to be together, to hear from your word, and to be encouraged and challenged by it. Let's help us now, Lord, to go and be faithful and to be obedient. Give us strength for each day. I pray that you'd encourage those who are weak and struggling, those who are sick, those who are discouraged those who are bearing heavy burdens, help them to come to you and to know that you are the great burden bearer and they can cast their cares upon you because you care for them. You care for each one of us. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Oh, Trevor's got it. Okay. All right, all right, all right. Thank you, son. Thank you, Lisa.
All right, we've got approval on all of these um, things, and uh, thank you for uh, going through that. So good, positive things on our budget and our deacons, and uh, so we'll look forward to just continuing to go forward as the Lord allows and directs.